When we started at MTV, it was the greatest calling card you can have. No one knew what we were really in for. We did MTV News. MTV had all these shows that we were making graphics for. If you want to use a font, Chiron, that was different, you had to physically shoot every letter. How to be flexible, how to go from the Xerox machine to a paint box to the Harry, the Henry, or whatever is next. When I was wearing my MTV badge, everybody was chasing you. So I decided to call it artichoke because it was a very organic word in a very digital time. Welcome to the season finale of season one of the Promo Cowboys podcast. I know what you're thinking. Already? Actually, I'm one of those guys who likes a short, bingeable season and more seasons to follow, which I intend to make good on in the fall of 2016. Look for season two of the Promo Cowboys podcast sometime around Halloween or the end of the Major League Baseball season whichever comes first. Meantime, I plan to make good on a promise I made in an earlier edition of Promo Cowboys, which I'll elaborate on at the end of this podcast. Stay with me if you want to hear it. For now, though, let me revel in the completion of my maiden voyage as a podcaster and the safe return of my passengers to port with this very special edition and this very special guest. T-minus 27 seconds. You know, you can't throw a brick in New York without hitting someone who says they were part of the MTV launch. You can't throw a brick in New York without hitting a TV designer either. My guest today is both, and I did not throw any bricks at her, though I think she might like to throw one at me. Nancy Palladino came reluctantly, haltingly, to the Promo Cowboys podcast. It might have been the ongoing trouble we had with Skype, or that Nancy Palladino, like the great characters of classic literature, demurs when first challenged, only to be later drawn in when the stakes are raised. Just listen to her story of first being asked to come to MTV. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. Back then, I didn't know what MTV was. No one knew what it was. A friend of mine said, I'm working at a place and they're looking for a graphics person. Why don't you come up and have lunch? And I said, oh, it's Midtown, corporate. Oh, I don't know. Oh, just come and have lunch. Went up there. Everybody was young and energized. What year was this? 1981. It was two weeks before the August 1st launch. And um, uh, I interviewed with uh, Sue Steinberg. And she was the EP at the time. And after our discussion, I immediately went home and made some graphics and brought them back to her. And I think that impressed her, so she hired me. So you you didn't know going in really what you're going in for, but by the end of that interview, you were like, I want this gig. Oh, yeah, of course. And um, they didn't have much time, so they stick me in a little room, and we started putting graphics together. No one knew what we were really in for exactly. We know times have changed because no one really talks about MTV anymore. At least, not in New York's TV promo and marketing circles. Not like they used to. There was a time, though, not long ago, when MTV was revered as the pinnacle of promotion. They were the masters of marketing. The dudes who did design cooler than anyone. And I, and many of my colleagues, consistently looked to MTV to influence the work we did for, well lesser networks we didn't even have a chiron we were going to set the type at that time so they all learned very quickly i mean a lot of most of the time it was collage we had no stock photo digitally 
we were right down the street from the um, picture library. They had a stock photo library, that, so we'd send an intern to look up, and then we'd sort of montage a little story together for all the over-the-shoulder graphics. I mean, these were, you were in news, you remember, you know, it's sure. the over-the-shoulder, but we, luckily, being in music can be funky and fun, and I did this all by myself until I finally got help. Okay, so, but previous to the launch, during this two-week period, you're doing a lot of artwork. Did you have a whole lot of exposure to the rest of the network at the time, and were you sensing that, you know, you were literally about to fire the first shot in a revolution? <laughs> we worked 14 hours a day, didn't realize we were in the revolution. But what the we were in midtown corporate offices and then the studio was on was this tiny little studio on 33rd Street and 10th Avenue. So, okay, so you guys are gearing up to launch the network. You know, when you're about to flip the switch, where were you at the time? Were you guys gathered? Was there? We had to go to New Jersey to watch the launch, the actual launch, because it wasn't in New York. And as I said, up until that point, we were working night and day and not sure if it was all going to come off. Um, So, And it was a small group. I mean, it was... I don't know, maybe 30 people at this time, which really wasn't a lot. So yeah, we ran over to New Jersey, we saw it launch, and now we were just getting all kinds of coverage. I think we had this funny story in the New York Times because we were a group all under 30. Yeah. Now, everybody's under 30. (laughs) Oh, I am a jolly Irishman from Ireland, I came. Do you want to know more about me? Pat Murphy is my name. It sounds like you're saying that you guys weren't sure that anybody was really watching. Uh, maybe not the first year, the first you know several months, but you know clearly you guys sort of developed into a zeitgeist kind of quickly. It was it was the greatest calling card you can have. It was sort of like going to Yale if you were a lawyer or something. I suppose you yeah. know, okay. like it basically helped to launch your career. You know, you can sort of walk into any door. Or you being MTV, everybody wanted to work there. Everybody wanted to come. Now it seems like everybody did work there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who doesn't have it on their resume? But I'm glad I stayed five years and not 20. Go to sleep, little baby. When you wake, you shall have all the pretty little On your other podcasts, which were all great, by the way, I just really Thank enjoyed you. them all. Thanks. Enormously, in fact. Oh, um, yeah, a little plug. Um, but honestly, for writers and such, I mean, you have a writer, your typewriter might change and the computer changes, but for graphics, my God, talk about a revolution, what we went through. You know, I don't know if people remember the paint box, but you needed a room for it. You needed a separate room for the computer. And when we started at MTV on Chiron, you had to shoot. If you wanted to use a font that was different, you had to physically shoot every letter and manually put it in to the computer. People made a living doing that. Peter Caesar made a great living doing all the <laughs> the Chiron. So every time you wanted to change a font, can you imagine what that would be like? And we had to, you know, ramp up and stay with the technology. And that's one of the things I did learn at MTV was how to be flexible, how to go from the Xerox machine to a paint box to, you know, the Harry, the Henry, and what, whatever is next. So you pretty much, you didn't go from the Stone Age to the present day, but you went from the Bronze Age to the present day. Oh boy, day. it was, felt like Stone Age if you think about it. Rawhide, 
when did the paint box actually come into your your workflow? 83 or 84? I think 84. And there was only about five in New York. Broadway video had the first one, I think. And then we might have had the second, and Peter Caesar had one, and you had to book it, and it's, you know, but we had our own. So I just stayed, you know, all night long until I learned how to do it. And then I had, by that time, I had a staff, and, um, and then we sort of worked it around the clock. We did the MTV News, and then we did, you know, MTV had all these shows that we were making the graphics for and, and um, stuff for the promo department. And, and when you left, you, you had climbed to art director at, at MTV. And, yes. But you were part of a certain department? We were production. My art direction fell into production, on-air production. On-air production, okay, which is a, a big job. Production is the engine that just kept going. We were the ones who put with the VJs and the wraparounds and the contests and the concerts and all the special shows and the New Year's Eve show. And, and that's one of the reasons why I left, because I felt like if you're an in-house department, you get you have to keep doing the daily grind and then all the special stuff goes out of house. And that's part of one of the reasons why I thought, oh, if I leave, I can actually spend time making something. <laughs> did, did you guys have a sense, though, that after, I don't know, six months or a year or two years, you know, we're, we're leading the TV industry at this point? Yeah. I mean, I th- think about 1982 and three. Once, once it was in New York, MTV was cover of magazines. It was all, it was the hot item. It was the big thing being talked about, but it was cable, you know? So cable in itself was all new, you know, CNN launched at the same time. So, so everything was kind of opening up. You know, and I've worked on a number of cable launches, you know, since I came to New York, which is a few years after MTV launched. And I mean, some launches went you know, spectacularly well, and some were really kind of just a sort of a fizzle, you know, a, a slow burn, if if uh, if that. But um, would you rate the launch at MTV? Uh, it was the slow burn. That's what I'm saying. The first year don't was not. We were not even on in New York the first entire year, and and that was somewhat by design because you you didn't want to show your worst stuff. What about the logo? Because you guys were able to have so much fun with the logo and really mess with it and pull at the edges and break it down. And Fred Seibert worked with Manhattan Design. His thinking was uh, the M was supposed to model after Superman a little bit. That's where the big chunk came from. The TV drove me crazy, I have to say. It's, of course, it's supposed to look, feel like graffiti. But um, the best part was to always screw around with it and make it as much fun as you can, which we did. Uh, you know, you go to a network now and their logo is, there's there's a logo police force to make sure that you don't do those things. And um, it's it's a rare opportunity that you get to actually have fun with a network logo the way you guys did. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I like to believe that good design will lead the way where you need it, you want it, and you'll continue with it. And hopefully it supports what you do and in fact enhances, but doesn't overpower the storytelling. And that's what I, I would like it to always be a good partner in. 
Well, the great thing about MTV is it was overpowering design, but it was what everybody wanted. I mean, we were, it was a drug. It was like candy. It was like heroin. Right. I was just going to call it. It was visual eye candy, but with music behind it. I mean, it definitely changed. You'll never look at music the same way again. I mean, that was one of the tags, but it was a long time ago. Ride on, mighty rider, you got your reins in your hand. Well, I ride on, mighty rider, you got your reins. Talk about the culture. What was it like there in those early years? I imagine it to be something like everybody's working and they're having a party at the same time. Now, I know that's probably not the case. It, no, I think that was the case. That was the case. I mean, it was a lot of work. You worked really hard and you played really hard. And like I said, we'd be flying to different post houses and it was a very exciting time. And um, you talk about the culture. Look at the New Year's Eve show, how that took off. Mm -hmm. Really, that launched into And then I remember when they did the um, awards with the with the Spaceman as the award. That was another yeah. Manhattan Design concept, you know, making the little Spaceman. One of the producer's uh, son was three or four years old and saw on network news a real, the astronaut putting the flag, the United States flag on the moon. And he turns around and says, hey, daddy, that's not right. It's supposed to be the MTV. It's supposed to be your flag, you know. So, Kids were thinking that, you know, MTV landed on the moon. More of my conversation with Nancy Palladino in a moment. But first, this Promo Cowboys podcast is brought to you by bourbon, beer, and bar pretzels. And by the TV crime novel Promo Cowboy by Barry Fitzsimmons. That is me. Look for Promo Cowboy at Amazon, Kindle, and your finer bookstores. So you are enough of a promo cowboy, Nancy, that you left MTV in 1986 when it was just catching fire. It was hot. People thought I was crazy. Uh, when you're the in-house team, you get you have to keep everything going, and you don't get to really focus on a project. You go out of house to, to and people get the the um, real plum projects. So I said, well, I think I need to go out of house. And the truth was, I it. It did serve me in that respect because I did become one of their vendors. And um, actually, I ended up being more of a vendor to, say, Nickelodeon at the time and, and then over to Showtime. And so it was really nice. So um, it was kind of a brazen move to make because MTV was so hot at the time. Oh, and Sumner Redstone had just taken over, and I thought, oh, I don't want to be part of this big corporate. You didn't want to work for the man. I didn't. Like, we lost that real fun flavor we had, you know, that casualness that we had. So, um, host houses were getting on this own their own personality, and... And uh, Video Works, they said, you know, you get your own paint box, which we did, and a Harry and a Henry and a, all that good stuff. I told you, I didn't even want to work in Midtown. I was such a brat. And, you know, and that's why I'm my own boss for the last 20-something years. That's guts. 
That's good. With my doggies at my feet, always. Okay, so you go to Video Works and they give you your own paint box. Right, so we started. Then I, once again, had to start up a department and um, put a team together. And that I stayed there for five years. It's funny, that was my limit, five years. So I had MTV for five years and then Video Works for five years. And um, much of that clientele was... MTV networks show um, and Showtime and all those people. Mm-hmm. So the cable stations, HBO, anything for HBO? Um, not so much HBO because HBO had their own studio and a lot of paint boxes on 23rd Street. So it uh, it tend to be more Showtime. And if it, oh, and A and E, we did a lot for A and E, and all of this spinoffs, the Biography Channel and all that. So it was all that cable network world, which was. Very creative, fast paced. You're you're just thinking on the fly. The thing also with the paint boxes, you'd be working on it, you're creating on it, you'd be people would be sitting behind you. That's how you worked. It was kind of crazy, you know. Well, yeah, I was the guy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you were probably many of the time saying, "I want that to look like this," and yeah, yeah. And I have my feet up on the console, and I'm likely eating something and reading something. Oh. You know, Video Works used to they um, we had an in house chef because yeah. you know the clients would come in and and I have to admit if I should say this um, I didn't really care talk about Mad Men I did think ad agency were Mad Men I did not want to work with agency people I did work mostly with broadcast because it was a much more I thought creative I mean agency people. It took 20 people to decide mm. what color blue was. There's no trust involved in the Crazy. Yeah. yeah. I think the yeah. trust that's built between a producer and an editor or a producer and a designer is really, it's unfortunate it's been sort of lost. But we made stuff. That was the fun thing. We made stuff that yeah. you, you know. It's funny how the fewer hands that go into something like that, you actually get a, a more interesting product. Obviously, yeah. the more people involved in the decision-making, the more, like, everything ends up being blue. Such a slam against my talent made me hotter than a mink. And I swore that I would ride it for amusement or for kink. It was nothing. So you were uh, key, though, to when you made this move and you sort of settled in there to incorporating design into the post house business model which maybe to that point it wasn't necessarily as much part of the front office stuff the technology dictated it so you know uh paintbox led the way but quantel was making all these other things you know the harry and the henry and for those who don't know what that is it's it's basically what's now after effects but in a machine that cost you know, $200,000, $300,000, $400,000 for the Henry or something, $400,000 so people booked it by the hour. Of course, now that's all in a laptop that, you know, you can carry around. But all the post houses had divisions with graphics departments in them. It was funny because you talk about going to Promax. When I was wearing my MTV badge, everybody was, you know, chasing you when I suddenly became the Video Works creative director. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I lost my trail of uh Did you have to do a little sales? Oh no well not really, and that's that's another point is I never no, there was salespeople. Um but the truth was they came I just always had a, a nice little following. I mean, you know, nothing earth shattering, but people who like to work together and 
Uh, even at, in my own business, I never, never needed sales. It was word of mouth and people that you keep continue working with. And I think that's really important because salespeople don't always know exactly what you do or what you do best. So they don't bring in the project. Whereas I like the client to come to me because they know what I do. I mean, there was a, a few years there I was doing everything sort of by hand. I worked with, uh, curious pictures and I'd, I'd morph them. I'd, like my design method was sort of like drawing and everything turned into something else. And I sort of, I, I became sort of the queen of doing that for like curious pictures and there had some advertising people and, um, showtime and did it for, and, and that was what fun. year are we talking about when you're, when you're developing this and sort of mastering 90, it? Like 1990, 92, 93. I was oh, wow. doing a lot of that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was, I was working at comedy channel then. Oh you know, yeah. They had just launched. So maybe I saw some of your work. Because yeah. we, yeah. you know, we kind of we took license with our logo. We took license with what we stood for as a brand. It was a very short period before, you know, we actually merged with Ha and then ultimately became Comedy Central. But um, merge with I ate up Ha. <laughs> we ate Ha. I thought they ate us. Yeah. Well, I was, yeah. I was the first person laid off from the the combined Pro and Empire, which is a story that I tell in one of the other episodes. So you you left. Uh, video works after five years or so. Is that when you formed Artichoke? Yeah, and that wasn't really a plan necessarily. All I thought was, you know, maybe it's time for me just to go freelance. It was not a plan to to have my own business, and um, I just kept pretty busy. And I didn't have my own space. I was working for out of my apartment. I hired my sister did some of my bookkeeping from my apartment. But you were able and, to do your design work in your apartment. Well, then that, you know, I was starting to work on Photoshop, Illustrator. And then I would go into the facilities and rent the boxes. And because, like I said, I would be the client. You so, were such I a mean, pioneer. We're talking early 90s, right? 92. Yeah. I did that. Yeah. Wow. Um, a few of us, you know, sort of did that. Patrick McDonough. Sure. BXB. Patty Bellucci did it. Phil. Phil Del Borgo. Del fat, Borgo. Big fat, big fat TV. Sure. Right. He was doing right. a lot of stuff for Comedy Central. He was, or Comedy right. Channel then. And right. Ada Whitney left Broadway. Right. So that, we were like that cluster that sort of, I guess you can call us pioneers, whatever. Miss Paladino said he hovered at the third floor Initially, I called it Paladino Design, which was, woof. I just thought it was weighty, and, but I needed to have my own name because people knew me, and then I eventually liked uh, artichokes, so I decided to call it artichoke because it's a cluster, and it's got a heart in the center, and it was a very organic word in a very digital time. It, well, okay, no shit. I have the most <laughs> admiration for the name of your company. Because I grew up on artichokes, being a California kid. Yeah, yeah. We eat them different out there than we do here on the East Coast. But it starts with an A, which totally right. makes sense. Right. And it it does sort of say a whole lot without saying more than a single word. So it is a perfect name. Yeah, yeah. So you chose artichoke down the road then. You sort of reincorporated or you... 
it, about two about two years into it, I just felt like I didn't want it to be on my only my show. I wanted to feel like we were a studio a group, and I wanted a a more abstract name rather than just being Paladino. It's cool. I was, I was glad I did it. Yeah, Paladino's not bad, but Artichoke is great. I mean, Paladino yeah. sounds almost like it's got to be a man. Well, it does mean brave. Paladin, remember Paladin? Yeah, it's Latin for brave or or knight. And there's a so, great TV show. Have gun, well travel. <laughs> paladin, paladin, where do you roam? One more thing about the name Nancy Paladino chose for her design firm. An obvious point, and I'm pretty good at making them. You can't say artichoke without saying art. Boom. Have gun, will travel, reach the card of a man. One of the things that is a super tragedy to me is the way the post house business model has kind of crumbled. And you were part of the of what made the post house business model kind of grow into something really wonderful. But tell me what you what your take is on what's what's happened to the Broadway videos and the Unitels and the national videos. It's technology. It's the technology. The fact that you can put everything on a laptop a whole edit system, a whole graphics studio. Um, technology just completely led the way. And I don't want to say destroyed it, but I remember when Showtime was doing that whole predator thing. And, um, okay, you can be a producer and an editor. And they were training all their producers to edit their spots on their laptops. And, you know, all of that is great, and some people have the talent, but what people forget is not the same person isn't going to have the ability, the talent to write it, produce it, edit it. I mean, there are some, but um, it was sort of nice when people had their roles, whether it's the designer, the storyteller, the whatever, and the editor, and you really, and everybody brought something to the party, and it was really, I think, richer. I don't think. I think some of it has definitely suffered from being in one box, which being in one box means it sometimes comes from one head or one hand. Or so many, um, so many that, that there's no actual central idea anymore. It's just, yeah. what does it say on the marketing brief? That's kind yeah. of one of my beefs as we, as we go through the season on promo Cowboys here. Is that I, you know I love a marketing brief because it sort of lets you know what you're what you're there to create. Yeah, but it it should never um, dictate. Not it, it shouldn't be the tight framework. It shouldn't put you in a box. Yeah, it should just give you the framework. Well, usually it says think out of the box. Every single yeah. marketing brief I've ever <laughs> right. seen. And then and then if you do, they bring you back in. Oh, the liars will be running in that. You are a, a native New Yorker who has remained a New Yorker. Have you ever lived anywhere else? Except for my country house, no. Which is also in New York. In, in New York State. It's upstate, yeah. I'm a native New Yorker. I'm a Brooklyn girl. I always wanted to be an artist. I always, you know, was the art school artist and all that kind of jazz through high school, through whatever. And, you know, I did painting classes at museums. And um, and then I went to Parsons. And I really wanted to go to RISD, but I didn't want to leave the city. You studied design at Parsons, but were you planning a career 
in television design? No, television was not even on my radar. My major was illustration because for my parents. I didn't want to make them pay for me to go to for, get a BFA in fine art. So I thought it was a good compromise, illustration. I loved, you know. So one of my uh, one of my earlier guests, Billy Kidd, is a Parsons graduate. Also, I don't know oh, if you yeah. if you heard that episode. I did hear it. Yeah, yeah. I ended up teaching at Parsons. It was pretty cool. Sam Bass was born in Indiana. It was his native home. At the early age of sixteen, young Sam began to roam. He first came. The funny thing is, going to become an illustrator, which was. Uh, you work at home. It's sort of like being a writer. You know, like you sit home alone and you, you make the drawings and then you bring them in. And then I, I suddenly realized, God, that's not my personality. I really like collaborating with people. I like working with people. And so it was so it was purely by accident that New York that I should fall into the whole television thing. I love the siren for what it's worth. We are in New York. <laughs> I took a job while I was at Parsons going door to door to um, art departments, to art directors. I thought it was a great way for me to get to know different art directors. And so I did. I went to magazines and uh, book publishers and ad agencies and, um, you know, big ones like Siegel and Gale and Ray. And I got to know people there to see what I wanted to do. And once in a while, I'd freelance and do a little project for them. And then the MTV thing, you know, popped up. And one of my closest friends at Parsons, um, you know, a few years later, as I got the job at MTV, he got the job at New York Magazine, which was all the envy. So we both rode that wave together, me and MTV, him and um, New York Magazine. And we both sort of decided to come freelance around the same time and we ended up sharing a studio together print and television studio he had his company don morris design and i had mine i was going to ask you his name don morris don morris is he still in business now yes sure he's a designer i eventually moved out of the studio uh so he he I needed more space because of edit rooms and stuff, and he took over the studio, so it was nice. It was a great time. It sounds really romantic. You know, the early 1980s, the whole world in front of you, design just changing by the day and growing and becoming, you know, the, the, the real driving factor. Yeah, yeah. In a car eating green. In a city eating cold ice cream. Cable was about, think of broadcast, and we had three television stations basically to watch, and then came cable, and suddenly we had 50 stations, but it was about narrow casting, and now we have beyond a number that you can even describe of what is good and what the content is and what is to watch. Yeah. So it's not just narrow casting now, it's like super focused casting, you know, like people That's what this podcast is. Yeah. And and it's I think it's great. I think there's a lot of wonderful things. Now it's really, really, really spread out, but as always, you know, the cream comes to the top and hopefully um the good work is what survives. I have to say I don't watch network television. I haven't in a long time. I watched PBS and then I watched selective television. Speaking of PBS, 
I'm a pretty big fan of Ken Burns and all his terrific documentaries. Civil War, Jazz, The Roosevelts. Baseball is a particular favorite. So when Nancy Palladino and I traveled to Yellowstone National Park with a relatively small film crew that would actually seem large by today's standards, we crossed paths with a Ken Burns film crew. Both crews were at Yellowstone in the middle of January, working on documentaries for the national parks. Ours was for the National Park Foundation. Okay, so we do this great project together for the National Parks Foundation. It was a fundraising video, but we had the opportunity to go to a bunch of parks, including Yellowstone, in the middle of winter. January. Yeah, it was, it was and you know, we were literally at Old Faithful when there was three feet of snow packed on the ground and there were bison. And one of the last interviews that we did when we were at Yellowstone was with Dayton Duncan. Do you remember that? Yes, who's been in the National Park's Ken Burns series, sure, I saw him, yeah. He's one of his, one of his chief producers. And it was, it, I recall it being um, at the last minute after dinner, and maybe we've had a drink or two, and they're like, hey, we just, we just booked an interview with this guy, and we're going to do it right now. And I'm like, and, and I'm right. supposed to be the interlocutor, so... Um, in the hotel room. Yeah, in the right? hotel yeah, room. I remember, yeah. Broke my heart that we didn't ultimately use that material for reasons that I never quite understood. But we didn't. I thought we got him in there on a couple of. He notes. was in the cut, but we we were asked to remove it, as I recall. Oh, and I think it was yeah. a political decision from a certain administration that was in uh, power then. But um, he cried. I made yes. him cry. Yes. I yes, made him he weep. Talked, he spoke of his family, and yeah, There's I do remember that. That's see to me. It's like if you can make a, a, an interview subject weep, yeah. um, and not because you're hitting them over the head with a blunt object. You remember that project the same way? Are you wistful over that? Oh, absolutely. It just, it was a very special pro, and it's funny because um, it came to me in an odd way. You know, at first I was just going to be doing the design for it, and then he said, "Do you guys want to go out there?" You know. <laughs> But um, I loved that storytelling. Don't forget, we went to Washington and and going up to uh, Rockefeller's office. Remember and seeing. I remember seeing all the art up there, which was really great. Yes, I actually was. I had to move a Signac and I think a Surratt. We're talking about a visit to David Rockefeller's office atop 30 Rockefeller Plaza. He was then vice chairman of the National Park Foundation and a gracious participant in our video, as was Jim Maddy, president of the foundation, and Gail Norton, the secretary of the interior and a member of the Bush cabinet. Yes, that Bush cabinet. But David Rockefeller's office at 30 Rock was a veritable museum gallery with Rothko's and Renoir's, Matisse's, Manet's and Monet's, etc., etc., I'm literally handling a Surratt. Right, right, right. We're like taking it off the wall, and I'm like, why are we doing this again? Yeah. I'm like holding this piece of art that's probably worth, right. I don't know, $20 million. Kudos again to you. It was a really interesting project, and the material is great, and it took 10 burns 10 years later to get it. <laughs> you and I worked together when Artichoke was doing production. One of the reasons we were doing production was because people were designing designing with live action. So if you remember all those beautiful, elaborate campaigns that were done 
for like A&E and Showtime and all beautiful. And we would shoot them like we did four for HBO. And then that get, that became out of vogue. And that's when I decided I don't need to do production anymore because <laughs> I wasn't designing with it anymore. You were a, a board member at BDA for a while. Talk to me about what your experience has been like with the Broadcast Designers Association. Well, I have to say, I, and I often would suggest to people, is if you want to get out there, get on boards, belong to groups, organizations it's really important and i have i will say that's helped me launch my independent career because you're meeting people all across the country um it was hard being on the board though i have to poof i started a campaign because at that time everybody was asking you to do work for nothing work on spec and they would you know gather you know the the hot groups and they'd say, oh, you're going to redesign this channel or that channel. If you get the gig. If you get the gig. So you'd have to like put this brilliant package together. And so we all try to unite. And, and the designers, you know, music people get um, their rights and they get, they get protected. And I think writers are kind of in the same ballpark as we are. So we started this campaign trying to get the clients to understand it's to your benefit as well. You're just going to kill off people. I mean, Pittard and Sullivan kind of killed themselves yeah. by doing so many bids that, you know, they did not think of the bottom line. And so the clients are just basically sucking people dry. There was an old miller who lived by the mill. Every time the mill turned, turned to its will. A hand upon the hopper and the other on the sack. Oh, every time the mill turned, turned right For the 20-some-odd years, I went to every BDA Pro Max and was part of the board, as you said. I thought it was a great time. It's, it's very important to exchange your ideas. I'm not a big fan of awards because I think they're not always fair. I've been a judge many times. But I do think it's great to be part of the organization, and I always suggest young people to join in and be a part of it and have a voice. And like I said, try and better our industry where you can. You might think someone with Nancy Palladino's design pedigree might never have been asked to leave her place of work. You'd be wrong. She's gotten fired in America. A friend of mine uh, was working at this toy packaging company, um, and it's right on 26th Street. And I was working at Parsons. I mean, I was going to Parsons. So I would walk over there and cover for her at the front desk for an hour or something like that. It was, it was just, you know, pocket change. And um, one day, I don't know what I did, but the guy came out. I answered the phone and I told him who it was or something. And, and this is sort of a scene out of Mad Men. And he came out shuffling his nose. Oh, okay. All of a sudden, he was really irate. And I said, was he, was he eating a powdered donut by chance? Uh, <laughs> he was he was breathing in a power donut and whatever it was he kind of launched at me whatever i said but he definitely said that's it that's it you're out of here and i was a little stunned and i was fine with it i said okay 
couple of days later when my friend said to me, oh, you realize he was high or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) A scene from HBO's Vinyl. Yes, exactly. Exactly. He was totally irrational. I didn't know why, but I was happy. It was not an important job, so it didn't mean a whole lot to me. I was like, that guy's such a jerk. Oh, Black Betty, Bambalamp, oh, Black Betty. Any final thought to share? To all the promo folks out there listening, promos are great, and designers are not always, I don't want to say respected, but not always given as much opportunity as maybe they should. So bring in your designers sooner rather than later. They very often have something to contribute. And um, you may be very pleasantly surprised. It should be the way you work with an editor um, and back in the day because you don't really do that anymore where you're sitting in the same room for 8, 10, 12 hours a day shooting the shit and your your minds come together in some ways. I mean, I think about the great relationships I've had with great editors in town and we just lost Joe Tavano recently and um, he's somebody that, you know, the two of us would, we would surprise each other. Yeah, a reminder to it. A reminder to all the promo producers out there. Designers deserve love and respect, too. Yeah, that's right. Appreciate your designers. Even though they're so much cooler than you, doesn't mean they oh. don't. Oh. Well, anyway. Okay. Um, God bless you for doing this with me. This has been great. Thank you. Oh. And isn't it amazing we did it? The technology cooperated. All right. Take care. Cheers. Ciao. This edition of the Promo Cowboys podcast has been brought to you by bourbon, beer, and bar pretzels, and by the novel Promo Cowboy, a TV industry thriller by yours truly, Barry Fitzsimmons, available in hard copy at Amazon.com and your finer bookstores, and find the ebook at the Amazon Kindle store. I'd like to thank my guest today, Nancy Palladino, for her time and her thoughts. I also want to thank freesound.org and the Pond5 Public Domain Project, who provided the instrumental music for this Promo Cowboys podcast. Speaking of music, we heard the theme song to the Western drama Have Gun, Will Travel, which debuted on CBS television in 1957. We also heard a band called Sugar Plastic and their song Ohio from their debut disc Bang, The Earth Is Round from 1996. Thanks for joining me. This is Barry Fitzsimmons, a.k.a. Promo Cowboy. I'm really excited about the people outside the industry who may have found this podcast interesting and certainly the people inside. I hope you'll feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Promo Cowboy, also on Facebook and LinkedIn at Barry Fitzsimmons. If you've got a good story about getting fired, I'd love to use it for season two. I hope I'll hear from you. We're, of course, happy to keep your name out of it. It's fun to share. Thanks to my son, Patrick Fitzsimmons, for creating the Promo Cowboys podcast artwork. I want to shout out to my support team, Jared Monero, Charles Berlepsch, Zach Trinka, You guys are the best. Thanks for everything this season. Hey, before we close, about that promise. Be on the lookout for a message from your humble host in the days and weeks that come about the audiobook edition of my novel, Promo Cowboy, brought to you chapter by chapter, serial style, beginning soon. Promo Cowboys is a Steve production. Steve is a division of Igloo Media, LLC. This podcast was produced by yours truly, Barry Fitzsimmons. Thanks again for joining us. As Promo Cowboy says, Shoot, that mean I don't gotta talk like this no more? I sure miss that fella Greg Trimble. 
take us out.